consistency. And uh, we're good, Wayne? Okay. Uh, and if you can turn up the volume a little on the tape, I ask that every time, and I know you don't know what to do about it, but I'll ask anyways. Guys, complacency is the same as, let me give you some words. Another word for complacency, mediocrity. Mediocrity. Here's another thing that we don't normally think of, neutrality. Just being neutral about everything. Or maintaining status quo. Or another word that I really like because it kind of makes sense to me is averageness. Averageness. Everything is average. Or another word that we might use, which again is great to describe it, is indifference. All these words basically point towards this one simple word we are talking about today called complacency. Complacency or mediocrity or neutrality or being neutral or maintaining status quo or being average, averageness, indifference. And I want to start off by saying that when you are spiritually complacent, you instantly begin to degenerate. When you're spiritually complacent, you instantly begin to degenerate. Proverbs 1.32 says that the complacency of fools will destroy them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. As in there's nothing that is uh, passive about complacency. It is, it, is, it is a degenerative disease. And there is nobody sitting here that does not spend time in this condition. Nobody. I definitely have um, chunks of complacency in my life. Uh, I'm beginning to catch them faster. But there's nobody here who isn't suffering from this ailment. And the moment you are spiritually complacent, you instantly begin to degenerate. I was listening to someone talk about this on TV, that sharks, if they stop moving forward, they die. If a shark stops moving forward, they die. Because they have to have motion that allows water to go past their gills so they can breathe. So if a shark stops still, it dies. We don't think so when it comes to complacency. And sometimes, not sometimes, Often complacency is learnt. It is learnt. And it is learnt in environments that we have grown up in. It's learnt in church environments. It is learnt in family environments. It's learnt from our dads and our mums. Often from our dads because our mums don't have a choice sometimes but to be industrious. But our dads can be that way. And our children learn it. It's an environmental thing that catches on and it spreads into different parts of our life. Problem is, guys, complacency is rarely viewed as sin. Complacency is rarely viewed as sin. It is seen as a condition that's common to man. And therefore, because it's rarely viewed as sin, one of the things that happens with the sin of complacency, one of the penalties of the sin of complacency is that you get used to it. You get used to it and it leads eventually to a hardening of the heart. 
Because as I get complacent, I get used to it. I don't see it as sin. I see it as something that's common to man. When did I ever repent? It's, it's, it's fascinating. I have never repented of complacency. I've never said, Father, this morning I just want to repent of complacency. Because I think to myself, but I'm human. These things happen. Thank God sharks don't think so. Otherwise we'd have no sharks left. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Over time, complacency leads to lukewarmness. Over time, complacency leads to lukewarmness. And it results in being vomited out of the kingdom. Over time, complacency leads to lukewarmness. And it results in us being vomited out of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3 verse 16 talks about that. I wish, and this is Jesus Christ, saying it to the churches and not mincing words. I wish you were hot or you were cold. But because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That somehow doesn't harbor well for anybody who it's being spoken to, be it a church or an individual. Any questions before we go on? Any questions? Okay. I want you to look at a verse uh, in Zephaniah. There's only one verse that most Christians know out of Zephaniah, which is Zephaniah 3.17. But there are other chapters too. Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah is towards the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah 1 verse 12. Zephaniah 1 verse 12. And here's what it says. It says, At that time I will serve Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. And then he compares those that are complacent to this. Who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Doesn't that aptly describe the condition of the church? He says, On that day I'll go around Jerusalem. In a sense the church is New Jerusalem. I'll go around Jerusalem with what? With a lamp, with my word. At the end of the day, it's the word that begins to sift and show you whether you're complacent or whether you're not. It's not the standards of man. It's not the standards of baptism, Baptist or um, Pentecostalism that shows it. It's a word that shows it. And it says there, on that day, hi guys, on that day, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish those who are complacent. As in, I'll discipline those who are complacent. Nothing about this verse is pleasant here. And it ain't going to get any pleasanter either. Who are like wine left on the dregs. Who are like wine left on its dregs. Who think, and this is what really got me. This is why one of the definitions of complacency is being neutral. It says, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Ah! That really got me. That is the present state of many Christians, regardless of the denomination we come from. K Surah Surah, whatever will be, will be. If the Lord does it, so be it. If He doesn't do it, so be it. He will sometimes do good, sometimes do bad. He will sometimes not do good, nor will He do bad. God is some neutral person out there. And the Bible calls that complacency. And rightly so, 
between spouses, if the spouse did not know whether something good is going to come or something bad is going to come, that's not called the unpredictability of being married. That's called not having a relationship. Just be mindful of that verse because it really brought home something. Guys, let me read that again. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. It kind of reveals a unique definition of complacency with his neutrality, which is prevalent a lot in the church. So let me put it this way. Guys, complacency is violent. Complacency is violent. We think complacency is passive, as in, uh, it's just, we just go into a place of passivity. And yet the Bible indicates that complacency is violent. Complacency destroys. If I'm complacent, Acts 29 will be destroyed bit by bit by bit. And you won't even see it happening or know that it's happening because it's violence that's under the surface. Because on the outside, it's plain passivity. There's a violence to complacency. And here's what it does, say. It brings to your life the spirit of poverty. It brings to your life the spirit of poverty. I'm not talking about blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm talking about the demonic spirit of poverty. It brings into your life the demonic spirit of poverty. And we'll talk about it next week. We'll talk about the spirit of poverty. And the spirit of poverty is not limited to money. A spirit of poverty is something that depletes or impoverishes everything from the quality of your marriage to the money to the ministry that you do. The spirit of poverty is something that impoverishes or depletes everything from the quality of your marriage to money to ministry. And complacency has the ability to bring into your life a spirit of poverty. Read Zephaniah 1.13. Immediately after 1.12, we read about it, and now see what 1.13 says. They will lose everything they have, money and house and land. They'll build a house and never move in. They'll plant vineyards and never taste it. So, if I were to just define the spirit of poverty for you as a teaser for next week, the spirit of poverty, the spirit of poverty uses your culture, uses your culture, and doesn't matter what culture you come from. Doesn't matter what culture you come from. This is prevalent in society in general. Uses your culture, but some of us have, have, in, in, have inherited this from the, uh, spirit, uh, from the uh, church cultures we've grown up in. Some of us have inherited it from the national cultures we've grown up in. Some of us have inherited from the familial cultures we've grown up in. It just depends on which culture, but all of us have this. All of us have this. Some of us inherited it from our parents. The spirit of poverty uses your culture to afflict you with a mentality of scarcity. Afflict you with a mentality of scarcity by dulling your spiritual eyes by dulling your spiritual eyes 
through the goodness of the Father. That is kind of a teaser for next week. So looking forward to teaching it next week. The spirit of poverty uses your culture to afflict you with a mentality of scarcity. With a mentality of scarcity. By dulling your spiritual eyes to the goodness of the Father. What would happen if, while I'm preaching, someone comes running in and says, Hey guys, there's, um, uh, they're jacking up the price of gas and there's hardly any gas in Vancouver. Some of us will have reason to leave this teaching early to go fill up. Scarcity begins to do something to our head. You don't know how, how drastic, next week when we talk about it, you'll be surprised at how the spirit of poverty operates so, so lavishly in our lives, in different areas, in different areas. I mean, t- j- just think of this, eh? I'm, I'm just giving you a simple example. A poor man who does not have money goes to a restaurant and he looks for the quantity of food. A middle income man goes to a restaurant and he looks for the quality of food. A rich man goes to a restaurant and he doesn't care about the quantity or quality, he just likes the presentation. It has to be, it has to have a few things standing out like this and the end of a lobster and a, a claw of a crab and it doesn't matter. You've got three different reactions to a plate of food. But we'll talk about that next week. The spirit of... Yeah. Guys, so here's my question. What's the opposite of complacency? What's the opposite of complacency? Sorry? Industriousness. Okay. Zeal, zealous. I can't hear you. Enthusiasm. I can't hear it. Expectations, passion. Uh, um, all of you are right. May I sum it up in one word that makes all of this happen. The opposite of complacency is first love. When you begin to go back into loving something the way that you need it to, your expectations increase, the passion comes in, the industriousness comes in, everything changes. Biblically, the opposite of complacency is first love. He, he says it to the churches in Revelation. To one of them he says, hey, you think you are this, but you are poor, wretched and naked. Come and get new stuff from me again. To others he says, hey, I want you to know that you're doing well, but your industriousness does not mean that you have connected again. There's a complacency that's settled into you because you have lost your first love. To another church he says, you're neither hot nor cold. This is a problem that has been tracking churches for more than 2,000 years. The opposite of complacency is first love. Whenever I walk away from first love, which happens a few times a day, indifference and averageness begins to settle in, as in any marriage. Newlyweds surprisingly don't. Whenever I walk away from first love, complacency and averageness enters my life. Whenever I walk away from first love, 
complacency and averageness begins to enter my life. Like in any other married couple that have fallen out of love. What is the first thing you see when a married couple have been married for a few years and they aren't in love anymore? What's the first thing you ha- that happens? There's a, there's a settledness, there's a complacency that is so blah that it doesn't inspire young guys like me to get married. While it doesn't happen with newlyweds, it doesn't happen with them. Because first love is still alive. Complacency comes in when first love is absent. Any questions on that? Anything you want to add to that? Or do you disagree or agree? It happens to me a few times a day, man. But thank God I'm aware that it happens to me a few times a day. Yep. It means it means averageness, it means indifference, it means becoming neutral, it means becoming uh, uh, blase, taking for granted, where it doesn't matter, you don't have to work at it anymore. It is there, you are married, you are saved, heaven is guaranteed, what's the big deal? If that was God's intent, I always say to myself, He would have saved us and killed us the very next day. Because we'd be in heaven. Guys, the trick is to jump back into first love, eh? The trick is to jump back into first love. Oh, shucks, Father, I'm really sorry. Nuts, I'm really sorry. Let me, let me get back to connecting with you again. It's the only way you can chip away at complacency. Only thing. Guys, you know one of the things that really swallows up our relationship with God? Other things. And we'll talk about how to not be complacent. But other things. Other things. Where, where you get so occupied with them. And these are good things. These are not bad things. These are advantageous things. These are profitable things. But you get caught up in them. And suddenly you find in the one primary relationship, like Martha, you've gone completely complacent. Does complacency conflict with being? No. No. Complacency conflicts with contentment. We'll talk about that. Complacency does not necessarily conflict with comfortable. Because you can be in love with somebody being highly comfortable. But But complacency conflicts with contentment. We sometimes think that a person who's content is that a person who's complacent is actually content. No! Contentment without thirst and passion isn't contentment. It is complacency. Let me say that again. People may look content. Oh, I got no needs in my life. Um, Whatever the Lord gives. No, 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 no. That's not contentment. That is blooming complacency in its full-blown state. Because contentment has in it a continuous thirst. Contentment is never devoid of thirst. Never devoid of thirst. It drinks and then it wants to drink more. Never devoid of thirst, guys. Never devoid of thirst. 
Complacency compromises his presence and replaces it with dullness. Complacency compromises his presence and replaces it with dullness. Complacency compromises his presence. Guys, let's assume I've become complacent in my marriage. You know what happens suddenly? I'm no longer aware of her. Let me pick on Matt and Rachel. Matt is highly aware of Rachel. So he's constantly aware of where she is, how she's feeling, whether she needs to lean her head on his shoulder or not and all this stuff. My marriage. Let's assume that I've become complacent in my marriage. Now what happens is, I'm not even aware of her, man. Complacency compromises his presence. In a marriage, her presence. And it dulls you. It dulls you to her. In this case, to God. It dulls you. This is a serious, serious sin that is eating away at the church and is present in all our lives. I've got to jump back into first love three, four, five times a day when I find these large chunks of my time taken up in things without an awareness of her. Matt, I'm just picking on him because I've seen this occasionally. This is not a commentary on his marriage. Matt can be um, trying to create a 3D printer and he's still aware of Rachel. Or the apple pie she might be burning in the oven. He's still aware of it. Pardon? Or a spider in the house. And he'll say it very gently. I think there's a spider over your head and the pie is burning. He'll say it calmly. Any questions, Matt? Guys, the other thing that happens eh, is that when spiritual inactivity is normal to my life, Bathsheba's enter the scene. When spiritual activity is normal in my life, as in, when spiritual inactivity, as in, I'm not doing much, Sunday to Sunday, or occasionally throw in a Tuesday, spiritual inactivity, when it's common in my life, will always allow Bathsheba's to start roaming the neighbor's balcony. Taking a bath, because that's her name. Always happens. What do you think David was doing? It says, when it was time for war, in the, in the time of war, David was walking up and down his balcony, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath on the other balcony. That's where it all begins. Spiritual inactivity always gives rise to Bathsheba's. Bathsheba's are distractions that the world says is normal. We get caught up in it. Complacency sets perfect ground for these things to happen. What's that famous uh, phrase? Uh, something is the devil's workshop. Idleness is the devil's workshop. Idle minds, idle whatever. Idle hands, idle mind, idle whatever is the devil's workshop. Kind of true, man. Let me draw this for you. Complacency leads to dullness. Dullness to his presence. Which leads to 
striving in the flesh. Because now when you're dull to his presence, you have to do everything in the flesh because you don't have a choice. Because God ain't the one who's behind what you're doing. Striving in the flesh. What does striving in the flesh lead to? It always leads to decay. For the flesh profits nothing but the spirit gives life. Meanwhile, Bathsheba starts trying to get your attention. Bathsheba's are basically distractions or conditions of the world. And while this is happening, there's only one way out, guys. And that one way is first love. And if you get that right, then you can start a new cycle where you are first loved to capture first love. After that, you go into an awareness of his presence. Once you're aware of his presence, then you go into contentment. Because what else do you need than knowing what he wants? Once you go into contentment, everything you do usually comes from the spirit who gives life. For the flesh profits nothing, but the spirit gives life. And once that happens, you start thirsting more. Because you know, man, there is nothing as good as this. And as you thirst more, you come back to being first love. And it just goes on and on and on. Complacency leads to dullness of his presence. Dullness of his presence leads to striving in the flesh. Striving in the flesh always leads to decay. So what do we then have to do? We have to come up for prayer. And we pray and God in his mercy takes care of it. But if we don't deal with a complacency in my life, it will always lead to a dullness of his presence. The dullness of his presence will lead to striving in the flesh. Striving in the flesh will always produce decay. What is the way out? First love. How does first love begin? By first recognizing that I am loved. You're a good, good father and I'm loved by you. First love always begins by first being loved. What does that lead to? An awareness of his presence. What does the awareness of his presence bring to me? An odd kind of contentment as in, though the mountains be removed, though the earth shake, I know. Be still. Be still is not, be still is. Contentment leads to the spirit who gives life, carrying me through everything. This is such a virtuous cycle that yes, you are content, but it is a contentment full of thirst as in I want more, I want more, I want more, because you are an infinite God and there is no end to you. And this is the only thing that satisfies my soul. In your presence is fullness of joy. And that then leads back to being first loved again. What a way to live, man. And instead, this is where most of us spend hours. In fact, I'd suggest to you that successful lives breed complacency. When life is successful, it breeds complacency. Things are going well. Successful ministries breed complacency. Successful mega churches or mini churches breed complacency. I am so glad that every three years we have to move. 
keeps you on your toes, man, not knowing what's going to happen next. Any questions? Guys, so here's a question I was asking myself. Every day, are you thirsty for more of God? Ha! Huh. The answer. I wish all of us could say yes. Every day, are you more thirsty for God? Every day, are you thirsty for more of God? Every day, are you thirsty for more of God? Do you need persuasion to make it happen? Do you need persuasion to make it happen? A hungry person does not need to be persuaded. When someone is hungry or someone is thirsty, my God, when, when, I, when I am thirsty, you know, I say, Jacob, please drink some water. No, Jacob, come on. It's really tasty. You know, it's, it, it doesn't look, it, it, it has no color in it, but it's really tasty. Have a swig of water. No, never. When I'm thirsty, it's hard to hold me back, man. So here's a question. Do you need to be persuaded to have more of God? If you need to be persuaded, if conditions have to be right, may I suggest to you and I that we are in a place called complacency. Because it's very hard for any of us to admit that we are complacent, that we don't want more of God. But if we really need more of God, then do you need persuasion? Some of the external measures, external, very clearly I'm saying, some of the external measures of complacency are, when it comes to the word, when it comes to worship, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to church, do you have to be persuaded? When it comes to worship, when it comes to the word, when it comes to conversations with God, and when it comes to being part of the corporate gathering, the body, the church, do you have to be persuaded? These are external measures. This is why we have a job description called worship leader. Because the worship leader is supposed to persuade you into the worship of God. Are you thirsty for God? Does it show in greater obedience and godliness? Are you thirsty for God? Does it show in greater obedience and godliness? Are you thirsty for God? Does it show in greater obedience and godliness? The reason I'm laughing was, uh, I remember a man, this is not a laughing matter, it's a terribly tragic matter. Remember a man who was having an affair, being confronted by a pastor I knew, and uh, he is saying to his wife, no, I really love you. This is just something on the side. You don't have to worry about it. I really love you. I'm thinking to myself, Really? Now when I think of it, I'm laughing because it is the most absurd thing you can say. And yet, are you thirsty for more of God? And does it show in godliness and obedience? Those are the internal measures. The other ones I gave you are the external measures. Do I have to persuade you? Do you have to persuade me to have more of God? Then, I guess what we are driving at is, Let's at least admit that we are complacent so that we can move from there. And plus, when I say, are you thirsty for God? It has to go beyond feelings, eh? Because one of the things that happens, especially among young Christians, and by young I mean anyone younger than me, is, you know, if you give Christians this sense of adventure, 
or let's do an event or let's produce something or let's do something heroic, that appeals to Christians a lot. But if you tell Christians, let's spend the next two years learning obedience and godliness, suddenly passion is not there. Passion is there for, let's go on a mission trip, let's go on an adventure, let's do something heroic, let's create an event that will draw people. Those things everybody can get passionate about. And I would suggest to you that most youth events are full of stuff like that. But try doing it the other way. Are you hungry for God or thirsty for God? Let's train ourselves in obedience and godliness for the next two or three years. Whole different ballgame, man. Remember the word contentment has to go with thirsty. Thirsty contentment. Contentment that is not thirsty is not contentment. It's complacency. With godly contentment, you never burp because you're never full. Godly contentment is devoid of burps. So if a Christian burps after spending time with God, you know that eh, this is just hot air. Uh, if you ask me a question about burping, I won't be able to help you. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, striving and okay yeah yeah good question how do you uh, differentiate between striving and thirst uh, if, if you guys want to answer whenever I do that is because I don't have the answer and I have to start thinking so if you can help me <laughs> yeah what's the difference between striving and thirst or is there a difference well, it's a fine line but how do you distinguish it? striving is works based very good. Okay, great. Labor. Any more? Yeah. So, guys, if we just took those answers, eh? What was yours? Yeah, work. Uh, uh, striving is work based. Thirst is. Um, no, uh, uh, yeah, there's a desire inside. It's not. The, the, the intent is not to produce something the intent is to satisfy something that's huge eh? it's Mary and Martha Martha wanted to produce something that would fulfill her desire for fulfill her desire for Jesus Mary had a thirst for the very presence of Jesus she had no desire but to be fulfilled by him Martha was to produce something that would fulfill him hers was not to produce anything, but to desire something that will fulfill her. It's almost selfish, but it's beautiful selfishness. So, it's a fine line, but uh, I know when I'm striving, you know, I remember once uh, when Eddie came the first time, um, um, first or second time, I wanted to impress Eddie. So I'm really leading worship and trying to do a good job, and for whatever reason, the church wasn't responding the way I expected them to. So I'm really putting more into it. And so uh, next day, I receive an email from Bernice. You were really trying hard yesterday, weren't you? <laughs> and I didn't like the email at all, but what can I do? It's Bernice. <laughs> so I admitted that, yes, I was striving. But the point was, I was so caught up in wanting to produce a result that I forgot the one I was worshipping. 
And my intent was, I've got to make this church respond the way I want it to. Because Eddie has to see that, one, I lead well, and that the church is good. And neither was happening. So the only person who got left out of it was Jesus, who was the center of our worship. Maybe you did. I didn't. So, how do I prevent complacency? Uh, 2 Timothy 3 to 6. 2 Timothy 3 to 6. How do I prevent complacency? 2 Timothy 3 to 6. Second Timothy 3 to 6. It talks about um, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, and someone else. Second Timothy 2. Three to six. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serves. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. So. How do I prevent complacency? Uh, disciplined life. A disciplined life. The only way to stay true is to have disciplined times of staying true to Jesus Christ. Not to Christian work, not even to Christian behavior. But a disciplined life that stays true to Jesus Christ. A disciplined life. We've been talking about this for the last three weeks. What we need to do when we get up. How we need to approach God. How we need to see how God sees us. We've been going over it again and again for almost two years. And may I say, even after that, I'm not doing it as disciplinedly as I should, even though I'm, I'm the one teaching it. But I'm, but I'm improving like crazy. A disciplined life. Don't raise your hands, but... May I, may I ask a question that I don't want an answer for? Do you have a disciplined Christian life in terms of not Bible reading or daily bread reading, but in terms of actual quality time spent with the Father that is not a token, but sizable because you have a relationship? Don't answer. You know, about a week or ten days ago, I suddenly felt that I should start exercising. So what do I do when I want stuff like that? I want to find company that would help me do. So I went down to the 10th floor. And I knocked on Derek and Don's door and I said, I want to start exercising. So let's go buy an elliptical. And Don looked at me and said, "And to do what? To hang your clothes on it? <laughs> and so I told him he'd be on probation for another three months. So, <laughs> so... We haven't bought it yet. I went for one long walk and thought, if this is the cost I have to pay, it's very high. The point being, guys, that Don has started going uh, for exercise because he needs to lose some weight. And so he started doing it. He's even changed his diet. He doesn't eat as much as he used to. Um, he's trying to cajole Derek to do it. 
and Derek about just about makes it grudgingly every week. But those guys have put in the work. Not much is showing right now, but that's another sad thing. But they've put in the work. I have all these grandiose plans. I even went to Walmart on Wednesday. And I thought, this is so boring. Just to keep doing this on a machine. So I've decided the next best thing is to buy a bicycle and just bike all over. Which I'm going to do tomorrow, of course. We'll find out next Sunday. The point being... (laughs) The point being... It's impossible, guys, without this. Impossible. So don't answer, but do you really have disciplined times of conversations, uh, discoveries, reading with the Father? If not, it is impossible to cultivate infertile ground for complacency. Second, a disciplined life, a disentangled life. If you're a soldier, do not get involved in civilian affairs. A disentangled life. A disentangled life is when you prioritize. Disentangled life is a life that prioritizes. That prioritizes and puts first things first. And in the process, what you do is you set aside those things that are profitable, those things that are advantages, those things that are good. You set them aside for one thing alone. The best. The best. A disentangled life. So when uh, Don started taking this uh, exercising seriously, I started bringing home food for him. Because I thought, this is not good. He's really taking this seriously. So one evening I bought him a Baconator, which I know he loves. And uh, he's saying, no, I shouldn't eat this Baconator. I just lost 600 calories. I'll put on 800. And I said, no, this is a non-fat Baconator. Have it. And so I'm trying to tempt him and he's resisting. Disentanglement. Disentanglement. How disentangled is your life? Disentanglement is not the lack of Goliaths and storms in your life. Disentanglement is prioritizing. How much of that is happening? Any, any questions, any comments on this, guys? A disentangled life. To keep life clear by prioritizing. I remember a couple coming to Acts 29 long ago, and uh, they said uh, they would love to join, but they're not planning to join because... Uh, there's no Sunday school program. And I said to them, right now it's not your child that needs help with God, it's you both. So I would suggest that you join Acts 29 and don't worry about your child. The priorities were wrong. They needed God more than their child. And so they joined. What is your priority at present? based on what you think God has placed on you. A disentangled life. Third one. A detached life. Disentanglement is different from detachment. Detached life. 
Detachment is when uh, my life is detached to God and so anywhere in any surrounding I'm ready for use because I present a life to God that is pure and intimate. A detached life. A life that runs by the rules of God. eh? Detached to God. And the moment I detach from God, like Jesus said, apart from Him I can do nothing. A detached God, a detached life is a life that lives by holy rules. And the last one is a discerning life. A discerning life. Where you have this eagerness to stand up and watch and wait for God. Like it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, 1. I've made my complaint known to God. Now I'm going to stand up on the um, roof and watch for how God will answer and address what I've said. Discernment at the end of the day is right judgment. To judge things rightly. Discernment is never gooey love and kindness. Discernment is not truth without grace. Discernment is right judgment. To rightly judge. And as it says in Hebrews 5.14, discernment only comes through the practice of distinguishing between good and evil in the presence of others. One of the things that happens in churches is we discern what we discern it in our own cloistered situation. Hey, anything that is discerned must be discerned in the company of others so that others can weigh and see if what you've discerned is right or wrong. What if I started building a 3D printer? Spend three months on it and then find out that I did it all wrong. Why not do it, discern what is right and wrong in the presence of someone who knows it? Any questions? Guys, four solid ways to make sure that we don't get complacent. If you want to say anything, add anything, take away from it, please feel free to do it right now. The first one is super important. eh? Complacency requires a disciplined life to destroy it. Because the very nature of complacency is averageness. Second, a disentangled life. As in, prioritize. Third, a detached life. Holy rules. Holy rules. Fourth, a discerning life. The ability to watch, wait and figure out what God wants. It happens through constant practice. To distinguish good from evil. Happens through practice. What videos should I watch? What games can I play? What worldviews can I adopt? What remedies can I subscribe to? Because the world is normalizing things. Everything evil is good and everything good is evil. I've got to figure this out because complacency is always mixed. It mixes the world and God together. Everything is... ah. Questions, comments? Hey, are you being quiet because you want this to get over or are you being quiet because it's helping? I hope it's because it's helping, guys.
complacency is is everybody's situation. I mean, ever since I started working on this, I'm more and more aware of it. And I go, shucks, father, there I go again. When I become complacent, it takes me three hours to finish something, which I could do in 20 minutes if I had this. 20 minutes I could have finished it. I'd have been aware. I would know how to do it. But in my complacency, God is out. And I am, I take three hours to finish something. At the end of the three hours, I think to myself, really, Jacob, how dull are you? When will you learn? Yeah. Last one, guys. The last point. That's not part of this. It's simply this. Live with the passionate. Live with the passionate. Live with the passionate. Because complacency is not exposed till it is confronted by passion. Complacency is not exposed till it is confronted by passion. I thought I was a great guitarist till I started playing with some other guitarists. My defect was not exposed till I met somebody who was better than me. Passion will always expose mediocrity. Passion will always expose complacency. Hang out with the passionate. Hang out with the passionate. Romans 1 verse 11 and 12, Paul says to the Romans, Hey guys, I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That you may be, that you and I may be mutually encouraged with each other's faith. Faith. I love that. Part of the reason during the week, the only thing I do during the week, other than meetings outside of Acts 29, is meet with people. And part of the reason I meet with people is just because I think to myself, there are certain areas where I am doing better than you, and if you hang out with me, by association, you will be upgraded. And I'll try once, I'll try twice, I'll try three times, four times. And then I'll wait to see if you respond. And if you don't respond, I won't push. Because the pursuit is yours. The invitation is mine. Jesus said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied or filled. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for they shall be filled. Any questions? Oh, and when I see even the slightest desire to uh, move out of complacency, I'll do everything in my power, man. You can take a horse to the water. You can even put salt in the oats. But you can't make a horse drink. That is left to the horse. You can switch the tape of Wayne, but just want to read out the first five lines.